Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. Today on the program is Georgianne Benish. Now, if you don't know Georgianne, let me give you a little bit of background. I had the pleasure of working with Georgianne very early on in my career, in the early 90s. She and I were both at a company called Netopia, and we were both there. I was there for about nine and a half years, Georgianne there actually for a little bit longer, and she ran product management. So I was running marketing, and she was running product management, and we worked very closely together on launch after launch after launch. So I thought it would be really great to bring her on the program 20-some-odd years later and talk about the alignment between marketing and product management, as well as some advice from her on leadership and go-to-market strategy. So without further ado, Georgianne, I found uh, in my research that you're a fan of Daryl Hall and John Oates, specifically Daryl's House, a YouTube channel. So I got a little music for you as you come on to the program. All right, there you go, Georgianne. Great to have you on the program. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, thank you. You know, this came about through the power of LinkedIn, right? Reached out and said, hey, Georgianne, it's been a long, long time, probably, I don't know, 20 years since we have connected and we went and grabbed a glass of wine here in the East Bay and caught up and told you what I was doing. And here we are doing a podcast together. It's awesome. Great to reconnect. Can yes, we? but it was, it, I'm sorry, I just have to say it pissed me off how you haven't changed at all. You still look the same age as when we first started working together. Well, that's a wonderful compliment. Thank you. I don't know if it's totally true, but I'll take it. I will take it. It was, it was, it was great to catch up, and I'm looking forward to our conversation right now about where we are today in marketing and make some comparisons. I want to start off with uh, a little bit of a story for people who don't know, you know, my background, our background. Fairlawn was the company that invented networking over telephone wire, which is something we all take for granted today. So Georgian and I, you know, were attracted, uh, have always been attracted to companies that are really bringing about innovation and change. And I was working for Microsoft very early on in my career, and it was Fairlawn when I left to go, uh, left Microsoft to join Fairlawn. And like I said, they were pioneering networking over telephone wire, incredibly innovative at the time. And Fairlawn was the leader in Macintosh networking. So Georgian and a bunch of us were working at a company that have uh, innovated not only networking, but so many technologies. The company was responsible for product called uh, Mac Recorder, which was the very first audio editing piece of software. Uh, we created a product called Finger, which was an instant messenger way before there were ever instant messengers. Uh, we created products for video editing way before there was Adobe Premiere or Final Cut. 
incredibly innovative company and we were cranking out products at this time and so it was a very high growth company fast growth company and Georgian and I were fortunate uh, to be there and be part of the leadership team when we took the company public in 1996 but what I want to share with you is that I was very young in my career then and was learning a lot and really grew up there and Georgian was one of my mentors because I did not have a lot of experience in product management and product marketing and Georgian I would always fear when you and your team would come down the stairs in our building and come over to marketing and go, hey, Dave, we've got a new product that we're rolling out. And I'm like, ooh, another product. And it was, it was always actually stressful for me. So can we talk about, have things changed in terms of like how product management and product marketing is working these days with marketing? Are they better aligned than maybe we were back then? I would love to say yes. In some cases, the answer is yes. I still think that product management and product marketing have, in most companies, especially in this time when 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 product life cycles are so fast and short, uh, that we all have an opportunity to uh, collaborate much earlier in the go to market and. In what I consider the old days, product managers really were responsible for this, you know, from inception all the way, you know, cradle to grave, from inception all the way through launch and ramp. And I think that's changed quite a bit in the sense that product, the traditional product manage, managers more likely in the engineering team as opposed to uh, marketing which is under the, the CMO type of organization. So in some ways, we've gone a little bit backwards, and there are, is a lot of opportunity to have the product management and the product marketing teams uh, work better together. There's this, um, I wonder if the framework has a name, but I learned about this from Mary Heckel. And Mary, if you're listening to the program, shout out to you stuck with me. Mary was a leadership trainer at Google, and she explained to our team, um, you know, picture a pendulum, if you would. And the pendulum on one side is, let's say, the example of chaos, where you're very, very agile, moving incredibly fast. You don't almost plan anything or very little planning. Uh, the pendulum swings to the other side, which you often experience in very large, very uh, big bureaucratic companies where there's too much process, there's no agility, tons of bureaucracy, and things move incredibly slow. And her message to the leadership team is don't get caught on either side of that pendulum. And back when we were bringing products to market together, um, we we worked on long cycles. We remember Lunar Designs and, and all the... Um, <laughs> Just, just the, just the engineering effort that went into the design of the product would take a long time. The molds, the time for the molds to come back. You know, now we've got three D printers, so I'm sure that's all changed. But if we did get advance warning in marketing that a product was coming way far in advance, we had a lot of more, lot more time to go to market. But you look at companies like even Apple today, who bring out a new phone every year. Um, and not just start the process, actually have a new phone in market every year and many, many companies just accelerating. In fact, anybody can do a software startup today and have a product in market in weeks, if not days, if they wanted to with the infrastructure we have. So I imagine, as I think about it, 
you can either be at one extreme, which is too agile and lack all kind of planning and not take the path to success versus the other, which is um, to, to move things too too slow. When um, I want to thank you for like how we approach go to market together. I mean, one of the things I thought that your team was always really good at, which I valued, is they understood the product really, really well. They understood the pain points that it solved for our customers. Um, they didn't develop these things in a vacuum. They really understood what it would be like for the customer to have it. So that helped marketing with the visuals, with the copy, with the messaging. Um, the part I think was always toughest, Georgian, and where I want to go next is knowing how to invest in the marketing plan, right? Not all products are created equal. Every product that a company comes out with shouldn't have you know, a full omni-channel marketing mix, per se, or shouldn't have the same level of uh, investment. So what what's your perspective, having now been on both sides in your career in marketing, guiding marketing companies, and also in product management? Like, What advice do you have for marketers on how to figure out how much time, resources, and money to invest in any given launch? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting in the context of from chaos to too much process, because that kind of uh, is a little bit of my career trajectory um, going from more agile uh, entrepreneurial types of companies to a big company like Cisco, where uh, the, the product life cycles are, are longer and the processes are, are greater. And one of the things that I did there, and I guide others, uh, companies to think about this, is you know, one of the big problems that we were having is when we at Cisco put together a group that was focused around um, building product and bringing product together specifically for small and medium business, which was not an area that Cisco had a lot of um, uh, expertise or personnel to, to execute that. And what one of the things that I did uh, after we had a few hiccups is led um, a tiger team, which is, that's, you asked me about that's my the name, name of your company, Tiger Team. Yeah, a tiger team to put together a, um, a process, if you will, on how we can collaborate across all different organizations uh, at the inception of a project. And so there were no big surprises as the product was in development coming down the pike. So one of the key things was that the marketing and sales teams were involved in the product early on, which one forced us to be able to articulate a value proposition um, early on, a, a revenue forecast, how we were going to go to market. And in that way, product management and product marketing and the other teams could work together and put uh, one of getting through one of our gates to, for approval, put together a very comprehensive plan, which had budget associated with it. So we would go to executive team and say, here's the plan. Here's the product. Here's why we need it. Here's the customer problems we're going to solve. And this is how much it's going to cost us to take it to market. And here's the projected revenue. So that's how on a, on a bigger scale, we were able to fund and prioritize projects because of course, 
as a product, you know, it, it, as in my experience as product management, and this, this I think still is true today, is your product, the one that you're managing, is more important than any other product that the company has and therefore needs all the budget. And that's the challenge for, for marketing, right? So if there's this collaboration around cost versus revenue priority within the overall organization, it does make it a little bit easier to get alignment around funding and focus. I always found there was a few key questions that I could ask that might help frame it. Um, one, one was, you know, around the target market, was it going to our install base or was it going, you know, net new customers? Because if it was an install base product, it was always easier to get traction. You could be more targeted. You had often higher conversion rates. You know, it was a very complimentary add-on. But when, when it was a new product, we had to spend a lot more time thinking about who the competition was and, um, you know, what level of investment we should make in it. So we'd ask questions around, you know, how strategic it is to the company. Does it, you know, support our brand strategy? How much revenue is expected to, you know, be generated with the the product? And it, you know, what, how long are those cycles going to be and that type of stuff? We didn't have the kind of omni-channel marketing back then that we do now, right? So as you remember, we were buying ads in PC Magazine and just really starting to use the internet in the in you know the early 90s but it was a lot of print we even ran wall street journal ads those were fun uh alan liked to do and so we were doing a lot of traditional print and offline media and then moved to the internet and that that allowed us to get traction with the products one of the things i struggle with i wonder if you have advice in this area too is around positioning and messaging because i know that's a expertise of yours so if you remember when we launched timbuktu which for everybody was a remote control uh, product. We invented uh, remote control software back then, certainly for the Macintosh, and we, we were the, one of the first ones to ever do it over the internet. And so I remember coming out with it, we were trying to look for the positioning was, are we going to, you know, LapLink and PC Anywhere are competition back in the day. And so we had very little budget to launch this new software and coming up with the positioning and the messaging and marketing for what this is. Where's that traditionally happening today, coming out with that kind of go-to-market message and positioning? Um, I'm sure that has changed a lot from how we did it back then. Yeah, and that's a really good example because, you know, that's another challenge is the the positioning, especially when you're going into new markets uh, or trying to reach a new customer asking people to change their behavior fundamentally to move from one solution or no solution to another. You know, when I look back on Timbuktu, if we had simply positioned the product around internal support, that this was a very cost-effective, easy way for you to support your, your, your users, desktop support, that would have been a message that could resonate with a very specific problem. So, um, one of the things that I'm seeing companies do, uh, which makes a lot of sense to me and uh, something that I support is as you're bringing a new product to market, or I work with companies that are doing a, a repositioning, they have product and technology, but they want to bring it into completely new markets. So a lot of what's going on, I've seen this a ton with IoT uh, for example, is focusing on specific markets and specific pain points, especially with a technology like IoT, which is so hugely hyped, yet the applications are really only now getting off the, the ground. And so um, 
I see a lot of positioning in the product areas that I work on targeted to markets and their specific problems. You know, in a healthcare organization where you might have 15 uh, medical devices at each bed, half of them connected to the internet, how are you going to manage those? How are you going to secure those? So it's a very, very specific pain point. And that's where I think uh, customers who are, or, or, or businesses that are approaching new markets, new customers really need to, to get specific on. Uh, it's just way too easy to generalize about the capabilities of your product mm-hmm. versus the, the actual problem that you're going to solve for your customers. Yeah, it was always it was I always found it very challenging to come up with that positioning. What what's your general view, pro, con, you know, for against uh focus groups and market research? Because people have strong opinions one way or the other. What have you found? I don't like focus groups. I don't either. I I don't I I just I think it's hard to really get the data you need. So what so a couple things here. One is that customers generally aren't going to tell you what you need to build, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, totally. Customers are not <laughs> customers are not in a place where they can help you create innovation within your organization or create innovative products. So the challenge with focus groups, unless you've got a product that you can put in front of them and say, "Tell me what this is. Tell me the problems that it solves." which I think is rare. I, I, I don't think they're worth the investment where I do think that you can get good data around positioning uh, a couple areas. I, I think market analysts are good because they're in touch with their clients mm-hmm. and their market makers. So that's one data point that I like to use. But the other is, just direct one-on-one conversation right. with sales. Sales is, the, is like the most important to me and, and customers, um, prospects. And that's hard work to do. But I think if you really want to understand how to position a message around your, your products, you need to talk to the people who you ultimately want to um, have them buy them. I mean, customers are great for feedback. You know, if if uh, someone stays at a hotel and you want to ask them how the experience was, right, you're going to get good feedback. And like I said, if you can put something in front of them one-on-one and get a reaction, you're going to get that. But would BlackBerry users or Nokia phone users have described the iPhone as the thing that they ultimately wanted? They probably would have just said, I want a reliable cell phone connection. You know, would would iPhone users have asked for bigger phones, which Apple came out with, right? Um, would taxi cab riders have asked for Uber, uh, you know, for it? So when it really comes to, like you're saying, true innovation, that's why I've never been a fan of focus groups for true innovation uh, stuff, because they, we, most of us think about iterations of what we had and what might get better. I'd like to get better gas mileage, you know, but maybe I'm not asking for an electric car per se. Um, it is, it's not, it's not something I've gotten a lot of value. And I certainly have gotten value from running ideas against analysts. A, you want to know how they're going to react to it when you're in market. So it's a good uh, prep work there. Um, want to talk about 
just mark digital marketing today because again going back 20 plus years together our content was what data sheets and brochures i remember making all the uh etherwave catalogs and slicks that we came out with right slicks and we had a lot of uh packaging we spent a lot of money on all of our packaging because our products were sold uh in retail so we spent a lot of my time what reviewing all of that content together everything that was said on the packaging and the logos the logos never big enough remember that we heard that all the time um <laughs> but we and today everything's gone gone digital and so well, for the most part, uh, things have gone di- digital. Packaging still relevant, certainly in B two C and um, the whole buying experience. But what are you seeing in terms of you know greatest hits from a content perspective used across your clients? I, I just want to remind you of Docs on Box, <laughs> where we did the entire user manual uh, on yes. the box. Oh so. my god! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. So. Um, you know, I think today the big thing is talking about the buyer's journey. And, you know, we used to go out to the customer and um, really have to push information to the customer. And now, you know, one of the huge changes that we have, I don't even want to say changes that we have with the, with the internet because that's making me sound really old, but now customers' prospects are self-educating, right? I think I just read something earlier, like 57% of the buying goes on before a prospect even talks to a salesperson. Oh, yeah, at least. So, so, so buyers are out there educating themselves. And, you know, there's, through the buyer's journey, you want to have clear uh, content in a variety of shapes and forms that, number one, educates and um, informs and does that in a creative, interesting way um, and also content that motivates and compels the, the prospect to, to take some action. Um, unfortunately, I just see this time after time. You know, you go to a website and what do you see in the first uh, menu item? It's product. Mm-hmm. And then you pull that down and there's all these product names and who the heck knows what EtherWave is or any product. Right. Uh, no one does. So those names uh, are very meaningful within the company. That's just an example. Or solutions, you pull down the solutions bar and then there's a number of markets. So mm-hmm. this, th- there's a, a need that I don't often see, you know, of course we always say Apple's brilliant at this kind of stuff. They always have been, but I don't see uh, or most organizations being able to get out of their own techno speak, their own jargon. They, they actually drink too much of their Kool-Aid because they can't or they don't, or they haven't figured out how to create content that is, um, that is for the the customer has the customer view in mind. So that's one of the things as a as a contractor or a consultant that I'm able to do is bring a completely fresh perspective and call bullshit on uh, techno speak. Right. 
It's um, I find that the marketers who come from B to C who have product merchandising, if you will, backgrounds do very well in B to B because they think, as you're saying, about how to put the products forward. And I think what happens over time, from what I've seen, is websites become catalogs and. Um, someone says we've got to organize everything and so there's a products menu and they have to put all the product names and there is some good rhyme or reason take uh, Adobe for example right their products are very well known well branded and if you have Dreamweaver or Premiere you might want to go to their site and get right to that product because you want uh, updates for it information plugins what have you and so you're one type of of shopper but just the opposite, Adobe has so many digital marketing products that how do you merchandise to a non-Adobe customer or someone who's not familiar with those? The product names like Audition. What is Audition for Adobe? If you know, you know it's for audio. As a, as a podcaster, you know I'm familiar with Audition, but I might not know what that is and discover it. So how do they merchandise those solutions to someone who's less familiar with their brand names and needs to find out um, different things based on their their interest. I want to talk about video, for example, because I'm still mad at you, by the way. Uh, I've never gotten over this. So uh, way back when, before you could actually, before there was ever YouTube, before you could make a video and put it online, we, such pioneering marketers, I think this was your inspiration too, that's why I'm mad, uh, we made this product called EtherWave, which we, by the way, failed miserably at, which we'll get back to. And Georgian and the product management team said, let's work with marketing and make a video and show people what it is, because it will be great to do a show and tell. This is a revolutionary product. And so they had me be one of the actors. And I say actors in the video because I had to play this character that was getting taught by a product manager what EtherWave was and had to act really naive about it. And I learned that day I could not act. The video was shot. I had to read this one line 50 times until I think the director gave up. And then, of course, you and the team showed the video at a company all-hands meeting. And so I've never forgotten just how bad I was on video. However, fast forward uh, years ago, I decided, God, I got to get much better at talking into a lens. And so I started making mixology videos on YouTube and Facebook for my friends just to practice, and it was really fun. But I want to thank you for that pain and suffering. Uh, however, you were a pioneer in in video, and God, think about what we could do now uh, that we couldn't do back then. And I, to shoot that video must have cost, I don't know, thirty to fifty thousand dollars back in the day. Plus, we had to make VHSs of them. Anyway, thank you, Georgian, for that most embarrassing <laughs> corporate moment. If it's any consolation. Um, at Cisco, you know, they have their own broadcasting studio and Cisco TV and all that kind of stuff. And for every data sheet, every product data sheet, we had to do a video data sheet. Wow. So I feel your pain. The only difference was you got to go into makeup first and they would try and fix you up so you would look presentable. I need more and of that then, these days. They um, take the shine off my head. So they, they got these little shine things that they, they wipe. By the way, the line was, if you really think that I'm kidding at all, it was, okay, Katie, tell me more. That was, she was explaining <laughs> EtherWave, and I had to act like this naive like person and say, okay, Katie, tell me more. And I, that line was shot like 50 times. That was a really tough one. Oh, we digress. Oh, yeah. Um, can we talk about, 
career growth and leadership. Um, as I said earlier, and I appreciate it, you know, I was really young at the time at Fairlawn, and I think a lot of people uh, were my supporters, and some people probably were betting against me because I think I was one of the youngest VPs of marketing in Silicon Valley back then, and I didn't know what I was doing in a lot of ways, and also brought, I think, some good expertise or ideas to the table. Um, I remember sitting in those board meetings and executive meetings and learning for the first time uh, so many different things. How about you in your career growth as a woman? In fact, in that meeting, you were one of the only women on the executive team, as I remember you and Brooke. And so I'd love to hear just some some leadership lessons that you've learned even past those days that maybe um, we never talked about or you've experienced and might benefit some other folks listening. Yeah, uh, a, a couple things on that. And, and I really appreciate you asking that. I was very lucky in uh, pretty much my first job, my first role out of uh, college in a product management position um, with almost no product management experience and a non-technical degree. I got hired by a company called Underman Bass. Mm -hmm. Um, Ralph Underman was a real pioneer. And in fact, the company, Underman Bass, along with 3Com, were the leaders in Ethernet. I mean, they were very innovative um, as much as you can be around Ethernet. But the unique thing about that company, and I'm going to date myself, this was the late, mid to late 80s, was that it was very forward thinking in promotion of women within the organization. I, I mean, I when I reflect, I didn't think of it at the time, but when I reflect back on that, um, uh, it just, there was a lot of opportunity at the same time, there was a lot of opportunity to get up in front of the executive team and really screw up your presentation. And I learned early on that you got to nail it. You got to have it nailed, no matter who you are, what you are, you got to know your stuff when you're going up in front of just about anybody, be it sales or executives or whatever. And so that was an early lesson. And uh, just kind of a quick sidebar anecdote, uh, Ralph Ungerman uh, uh, unfortunately died uh, a year, about a year ago and went to the funeral memorial. And I got to see all my Ungerman Bass uh, product management cohorts, and uh, that was a kick. And we were talking about how uh, the management style of that company was, was unique. So what I realized though, moving, moving, kind of moving on. And especially when I went to Fairlawn, as great of a company as it was, is I was struggling with mentor, you know, who uh, I found it challenging to find mentors. Um, I was looking for a woman who could, mm-hmm. who I could um, uh, emulate and learn from. And, and then what, what happened was at some point I had this aha moment where it doesn't need to be a woman, you know, and you can find mentors uh, in most anyone. And it doesn't have to be someone who's in senior management. Mm -hmm. And I think when I, when I got to that point where I could learn just to be myself and find people who could 
be good examples for me on how I wanted to be as a, as a corporate citizen, that was, that was really important. And then the last thing is just, you know, I learned just take no prisoners. I mean, you know, the reality was as a woman and it continues to be, and it totally shocks me, um, how, how much harder you have to work as a woman in order to get gain credibility. Uh, I was just looking at something on LinkedIn this morning, um, like the top hundred VCs list and they're 85% were white men. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this whole need for diversity and stuff is really kind of something that, uh, when you get to a certain point in your career, you really reflect back on and encourage moving forward to find ways for, for diversity. But I was lucky. What lucky how? Uh, it just having, uh, having had great managers, having had managers, uh, you know, senior managers that were, that I could learn from, uh, and who, who, had you know, big expectations out of me and for me that um, I guess maybe it wasn't luck. I worked my, I worked hard, but um, it, maybe it was just being in the right place at the right time there. I was able to build a, a great career. Well, some qualities about you, as I'm thinking, just playing back very quickly in my head, lots of those experiences together and, and how you showed up as a leader the first thing that stands out to me was you were always prepared. You never came to a meeting uh, unprepared. You didn't share ideas that were half-baked. You had always done your homework and done your research. And so there was always a lot of conviction in what you were sharing and doing, and it was always backed up in um, information. And so your confidence came through because you really believed in what you were sharing and you know the the examples and the data was there to do it the other thing i noticed your jan is that you know you didn't give up very easily especially if you believed in something you know if if alan or other members of the executive team challenged you or pushed back you know you you would lean in further and you 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 take that challenge as okay i haven't haven't made my case yet, and I'm going to, you know, go back to the jury or go back to the judge and and continue my case. And maybe you feel differently, but I didn't witness many times, even any that I can recall, where you didn't champion and and get the initiative that you were hoping to achieve. So, woman or not, your style of being prepared and showing up with the right information. Um, you know, a good leadership team really bashes on each other. I don't mean in a hurtful way. I mean, we try to punch holes in the idea, try to find where the gaps are, where it's not going to work, where it's going to fail. And you, I think, always anticipated those challenges and had the answers uh, to go. And if you didn't win, you you came back. That's That's how you showed up to me. And I personally appreciate, you know, the support that you gave me and, and, and uh, coaching that you gave me and believed in me and the team. And that, that always made it um, enjoyable to work with because it wasn't uh, anything ever personal. It was, Hey, let's get this, let's get this done together and figure it out. Appreciate that. Well, thank you. Those are kind words, you know, and I, you will, you will, um, I know agree with this and are probably a, a representation of this is that it's how, how you leverage your, your team, your staff, your, you know, your team across functions mm-hmm. and, 
learn from them and delegate that to them and take take what they give you and use that. I mean, without having a great team uh, or being part of a great team, because you know you may never be a manager, but you got to get stuff done. And it's how you work with people, both um, as peers and um, as, as managers and subordinates. I think that's so key in, um, in uh, making those things happen. Uh, Just one quick thing that I think really holds true even today. And this is something that I learned way back at Ungerman Bass. Um, you can thank John Davidson for the preparation thing. He was the, the chief technical officer and one of the founders of the company. You, before you went in front of uh, executive team to present any idea, like I did this huge strategy project, and before I went and presented the results, you, you, I, you had to go to each individual stakeholder and present and get their buy-in and make it theirs, you know, that they had ownership in it. Otherwise, if you went and presented this thing that you were married to uh, in front of this group of people who may or may not care, you probably aren't going to get the results that you were hoping for. So it's even back then, one of the things I learned is it's as much selling internally as it is selling externally to have, product and and marketing success, right? Absolutely. And, you know, you talking about it, when you were saying some things earlier, I was thinking about how collaborative you were. And as you described exactly that strategy, you were the master at that. You would go to Stephen Dix and get the channel buy-in. You would go to Ken and get the head of sales buy-in. You would go to finance and legal. And you had a great partnership with Dick in operations. Um, and so you you had those individual conversations and kind of preloaded things. And so no one was necessarily surprised when game day came and you were making a proposal or bringing an idea forward because you had you had um, had all those individual. I, you know what? Now now your secret recipe is revealed. It's it's great. <laughs> it worked for you. It's um, I've done some workshops where. I've asked someone, you know, on stage or come up and they put their hand in the air and I put my hand up and I push on their hand and they always push back. And I say, that's, that's human instinct. You push on someone, they push back, but then you put your hand out and you put your palm up and you say, can you help me with this? And it's a totally different vibe. It's a totally different relationship. And so by you coming with palm up and sharing your ideas early on and getting that buy-in, no wonder you were so successful. I like the recipe. But you know that isn't that true for how we should be uh, interacting with our customers and our prospects Absolutely. is not so much pushing, but opening the door, you know, lifting the hand and creating a partnership in all the different with all the different tools that we have to do that. Yeah. Well, hey, I think we're going to wrap it right there. That was some incredible advice right at the end of the podcast. So let's end on that. High note, and I just want to say that it has been phenomenal to reconnect with you. You know, LinkedIn is in many ways like Facebook for business, right? And I'm glad that LinkedIn brought us back together. And let's continue our conversations and our journey uh, after so many years. Um, it's great to reconnect. So thank you, Georgian. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you. It was fun, Dave. I, I, I had a great time. Thanks. 
You bet. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of Demand Gen Radio. Great to reconnect with Georgiana. I hope you got some valuable insights. Um, look Georgiana up on LinkedIn if you need some uh, extra expertise in product marketing and go-to-market strategy and messaging. Uh, I was honored early in my career to work with one of the best. So I'm glad you're out there continuing to help companies. And that'll do it. We'll catch you on the next episode. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing. 